Before we get into Ruth this morning, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And hear the words of Jesus in his parable of the wedding feast. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this last line of the parable is the parable's main point. For many are called, but few are chosen. In this parable, Jesus talks about a king who is symbolic of God the Father, and this king has a son who is symbolic of Jesus himself, and the king is preparing a wedding feast for his son, and he sends out his servants, who are symbolic of his people, to summon invited guests who are symbolic of the lost, and in this context are the Jews, to come to the wedding feast. So the servants go out and they say, the wedding feast for the son is ready. Come, eat, celebrate. But the guests would not come. So what does the king do? He continues to send servants to them, saying, the wedding feast for the son is ready. Come, eat, celebrate. And they go off and go about their daily business, rejecting this once-in-a-lifetime experience with the king and his son. And then we're told that some of the invited guests seize the king's servants, treat them shamefully, and kill them. These invited guests didn't just reject the king, they actually hated him and hated his people also. And the king is furious and responds with justice, destroying the murderers and burning their city. But then the king, in his grace, sends out his servants to find other guests who are also symbolic of the lost, and in this context are the Gentiles. And the servants find many guests, and the wedding hall becomes filled. And evidently the king had provided royal robes, which is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ, which 
covers us and clothes our unrighteousness. But one guest isn't wearing the royal robe. And the king asks him how he got in. And the man is speechless. He thought that he could come and stand before the king as though he in and of himself was pleasing enough before him. And then the king has him cast into outer darkness, which is symbolic of eternal separation from God forever. And the parable ends with this explanation, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now go ahead and turn from Matthew to Ruth chapter three. I've titled this message this morning, Go to the Goel. Goel is the Hebrew word for redeemer. And this morning in Ruth chapter three, we'll see Ruth go to Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, in the middle of the night, asking for marriage. And we'll also talk about how this is a picture of our going to God, our Goel, our redeemer. But before we dig in, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Your word which teaches us, reproves us, rebukes us, extorts us, and shows us the riches of your grace and love for even the most wretched of sinners. Lord God, come now and help us understand what you want to show us this morning. Amen. So two weeks ago, we began in the book of Ruth and read about how in the days when the judges ruled, Elimelech and Naomi leave their hometown of Bethlehem with their two sons during a famine, and they sojourn in Moab. And their sons Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. But later, Elimelech and both of his sons die, leaving Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah as widows. And so Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, and Ruth comes with her saying, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And when they return, it's the beginning of barley harvest. And then last week, we talked about how one of the very first things that happens when Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem is that a man emerges from the shadows into this story, and he's a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband. His name is Boaz. And he's a man who loves God and loves God's people. And he shows incredible kindness to Ruth. And we saw that Boaz is such a wonderful example of true kindness, not because he was obedient to the law, but because over and over again, we see him going above and beyond the law to bless Ruth in loving, compassionate, and gracious ways. And at the end of chapter two, we're left wondering, Will Boaz continue to be a part of Ruth's story? And perhaps in a big way. After all, Ruth is still unmarried, which is a huge narrative tension that seeks resolution. And I also said last week that I would explain what it meant that Boaz was a redeemer. And this is a really important concept to understand if we're going to make sense of the rest of the book. Naomi said to Ruth, Back in chapter two, verse, at the end of verse 20, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And this word redeemer, 
or goel in the Hebrew is a motif that will keep recurring over and over and will alter the entire course of this story. So what does it mean that Boaz is a goel? What does it mean to be a goel? Uh, A goel, a redeemer, was basically a relative in a family who, according to Israelite law, would buy back his relatives if they had fallen into debt and had to sell themselves into slavery. He would buy them back. He would redeem them. But not just that, under certain circumstances, according to not the law, but a cultural custom which was like leveret marriage, which we talked about last week, the goel would also marry a childless widow in the family. This was also a form of redemption. It was redeeming an unfavorable situation for a favorable one. And it seems that Naomi had this cultural custom in mind and was assuming a marriage duty on the part of Boaz for Ruth when she said back in chapter 2, verse 20, that Boaz was a close relative of theirs and one of their redeemers. And so now that we know that Naomi sees Boaz as not just a potential marriage prospect for Ruth, but the marriage prospect for Ruth, according to this cultural custom of the kinsman redeemer, the whole story begins to take a new shape. Naomi wants Boaz to redeem Ruth's situation as a childless widow. And with that in mind, we come to chapter three, verses one through five. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So Naomi knows that Boaz will be winnowing barley, separating the kernels of grain from the husks at the threshing floor at night. And he would be sleeping at the threshing floor at night because, remember, these are the days when the judges ruled and Israel had no king and everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. If thieves came into the threshing floor and stole grain, there was no law enforcement that would do anything about it. And so Boaz had to sleep at the threshing floor overnight with his barley to protect it himself. And so... Naomi comes up with this plan. Ruth, take a bath. Put on some perfume. Put on your nicest clothes and go down to the threshing floor at night, but don't let anyone see you. And when Boaz has gone off to sleep, uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this immediately strikes me as a pretty bad idea. It sounds like Naomi is telling Ruth to go seduce Boaz. And actually, that's exactly what it's supposed to sound like. The text is very suggestive and 
It's even worse than the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, all of verse four is filled with suggestive double entendres, which create the impression that this scheme might result in Boaz and Ruth sleeping together. But of course, the last move belonged to Boaz, and he will tell you what to do, which also sounds pretty suggestive. And that leaves us wondering, what will Boaz tell her to do? When Boaz is confronted by Ruth in this way, will he compromise morally? Or will he continue to show Ruth chesed, loyal kindness, faithful kindness, covenant kindness before the holy God? Let's find out what happens, verses six through nine. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for I know that you are a redeemer. For I know that you are a goel. So everything went according to plan. Boaz went to lie down, and Ruth went and uncovered his feet and laid down, just as Naomi had told her to do. And not surprisingly, Boaz is totally startled. Think about this. If you were sleeping alone and someone just appeared at the end of your bed in the middle of the night, how freaked out would you be? I'd probably kick the person in the face without even thinking about it. Boaz is freaked out. Who are you? And to his surprise, it's Ruth. Imagine what Boaz might have been thinking at that moment. Oh no. Is Ruth just another Moabite? I've heard all about Moabite women. Is she a prostitute? I thought Ruth was different. But before he can react, Ruth goes off script, and instead of waiting for Boaz to tell her what to do as Naomi had instructed her, she blurts out, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In the Hebrew, this literally reads, and spread therefore the corner of your garment over your handmaiden, and To spread the corner of a garment over a person was a Hebrew idiom which meant to marry. To marry. And you can find the same language, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, where God says, I spread, spread the corner of my garment over you and made you mine. And so when Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, spread the wings over your servant, she's saying, marry me. Marry me, for you are a redeemer. Now remember, just because Boaz is a kinsman redeemer doesn't mean that he is obligated by law to marry Ruth, right? Because leveret marriage didn't technically apply to this situation. If if Boaz was obligated to marry Ruth, then this whole scheme devised by Naomi would have been completely unnecessary. 
And Ruth could have just walked up to Boaz and said, you're it. You're the guy. Marry me. Ruth is asking Boaz to go above and beyond the law, to act in the spirit of the law, to graciously take her to be his wife, even though he is under no legal obligation to do so. And I'm sure she's asking with some fear and trembling and hesitancy because she's a Moabite. Who would want to associate with, let alone marry, a Moabite? Israel despised the Moabites. They looked down upon the Moabites as subhuman creatures. They were a people and nation literally born out of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter back in Genesis chapter 19. If Boaz took Ruth to be his wife, he'd probably become a social outcast. And Ruth knows this. That's why she said to Boaz back in chapter 2, verse 11, verse 10 rather, why have I found favor in your eyes that you would notice me since I'm a foreigner, since I am a Moabite? Nevertheless, she comes to Boaz and she asks, will you redeem and listen to the tender response of the Redeemer. Verses 10 and 11. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughters, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So perhaps to Ruth's surprise, Boaz responds by blessing her in the name of Yahweh and by affectionately calling her his daughter. And then he says that this last kindness in asking to marry a kinsman redeemer like him is even greater than the first. And the first kindness he's referring to is spelled out in his own words back in chapter two, verse 11, where he praises Ruth for her kindness in leaving her hometown of Moab to care and protect for her aging mother-in-law, Naomi. And evidently, Boaz was an older man, and he praises Ruth for not going after younger men, whether poor or rich, meaning she could have married out of passion for love, a young poor man, or she could have married uh, out of greed for money, a young rich man, but instead, she chose to be loyal to her family to continue to be a blessing to Naomi. And then again, Boaz affectionately calls her his daughter and says, do not fear. And then, mirroring Ruth's own words to Naomi, earlier, Boaz says, I will do all that you ask. And why would he do all that she asks? Boaz says, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And here in the Hebrew, Boaz literally says, all the people at the city gate know that you are a woman of worth. All the people at the city gate know that you are a woman of worth. 
the last chapter of Proverbs, chapter 31, describes the characteristics of a godly woman. And after describing the characteristics of a godly woman, the last line of the book of Proverbs says, let her works praise her in the city gates. Let her works praise her in the city gates. Boaz says, all the people at the city gates know that you are a woman of worth. Ruth was a Proverbs 31 woman. And Boaz intends to redeem her, but there is one obstacle in the way. Let's keep reading verses 12 and 13. Boaz says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So evidently there was a relative nearer to Naomi and Ruth, a a kinsman redeemer nearer to Naomi and Ruth, someone perhaps more eligible to perform this cultural custom of the redeemer. But Boaz is gonna make sure that all this is sorted out, and if he won't redeem her, then Boaz swears on it. He says, I will. I will redeem you. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, Boaz wanted to protect Ruth's reputation as a godly woman, a woman of worth. He knew that although nothing bad happened between them that night, that it still wouldn't look very good if people had found out that they had spent the night together. So Boaz sent Ruth away quickly in the early morning, but not before giving her a gift. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and she went into the city. Now, I'm guessing that Ruth was probably a pretty burly woman because six measures of barley is about 80 pounds, and Boaz had to put this on her, probably onto her shoulders or onto her back, and she carried it all the way home. And now, you can take this for what it's worth. Um, I'm not really big on numerology in the Bible or any of that weird stuff, but the number seven is often used in the Bible as a symbol of completeness or perfection. And the number six also seems to be significant as well as a symbol perhaps of incompleteness. Genesis says that God created for six days, but it wasn't until he rested on the seventh day that the creation week was complete. And Joshua and his army marched around the walls of Jericho, but it wasn't until the seventh day that the walls came down. And maybe, just maybe, it's also significant that Ruth only received six measures of barley and not seven. How so? Naomi is seeking rest for Ruth, but her rest is still incomplete. Boaz does intend to marry her, but he hasn't yet. 
Ruth is still waiting for an even greater gift of seed, a child, a child who will continue the family line. Let's keep reading first half of verse 16. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? It's kind of interesting in the Hebrew, Boaz, or Naomi literally asks, who are you, my daughter? She's saying, well, are you Mrs. Boaz yet or what? (laughs) Who are you? Second half of verse 16 and 17. Then Ruth told Naomi all that Boaz had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So Ruth recounted the whole conversation they had at the threshing floor, and then this is interesting. We find out that all of this barley, around 80 pounds worth, was primarily intended for Naomi, and only secondarily intended for Ruth. Ruth says, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Very interesting. Why is that interesting? It's interesting because, well, who was it who felt like she was going back empty-handed at the end of chapter one? Who was it who, upon returning to Bethlehem, cried out, the Lord has brought me back empty? It was Naomi. And now it seems in the providence of God, Boaz's gracious gift of barley and the words of Boaz, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law, was God's subtle way of communicating through Boaz's gift and through Boaz's words told by Ruth to Naomi, look, look, I never once left you empty. I've been providing for you all along, largely through Ruth. Ruth, the one you overlooked when you returned to Bethlehem, crying, the Lord has brought me back empty. And maybe, just maybe, these six measures of barley was Boaz's gracious way and God's gracious way of saying to Naomi, wait for it, wait for it. In due time, completeness will come, but in the form of a different seed, not a seed to fill the stomach, but a seed to fill the womb, a child. In the last verse, verse 18, Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle settle the matter today. In the beginning of this chapter, Naomi was feverishly scheming this plan for Ruth. But now she says, wait. It seems Naomi now knows that these matters are not ultimately in her hands, or even in Ruth's hands. And so for now, the story is at a standstill, held in dramatic tension, but anticipating a bright uh, resolution. And like Ruth, we too 
must go to our Goel to be redeemed. Like Ruth, we too are foreigners without a home apart from our Redeemer. Like Ruth, we too are widows without a husband apart from our Redeemer. Like Ruth, we too are poor without a claim on anything apart from our Redeemer. But it's not just that we're lacking good things that we need, but apart from our Redeemer, we are cursed, guilty of sinning against the law of God. Apart from our Redeemer, we have not been forgiven of our lifetime of sin. Apart from our Redeemer, we are lost in darkness. And apart from our Redeemer, we have no hope of heaven, but only the wrath of God that we deserve. But Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus redeems those who trust in him from the curse of the law, having become a curse for them. Ephesians 1.7 says that Jesus redeems those who trust in him from all their sin and trespasses by forgiving them according to the riches of his grace through his own blood. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says that Jesus redeems those who trust in him from the domain of darkness, transferring them into the kingdom of his light. And Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus redeems those who trust in him unto himself for all eternity. Regardless of our past or even our present condition, if we will go to our Goel, he will, like Boaz, welcome us, spread his wings over us, bless us, comfort us, and do for us immeasurably more than we could ever even ask or dream of. If we will go to him and ask, he will redeem us. He will become our husband. He will save us. He will give us rest. He will satisfy our every need and he will hold us in his arms and never let us go. We must go to our Goel to be redeemed. We must go to our Goel to be redeemed. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus says in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But Jesus says at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will be saved. He says, in fact, many people will come to him on that last day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? and this and that and all these things in your name. But he'll reply, I never knew you. It seems that some people think they have come to Jesus, but they really haven't ever come to him at all. Maybe they think that being raised in a Christian family means that they have come to Jesus but a relationship with Jesus isn't something you're born into. Maybe they think that because they come to church every week means that they have come into a relationship with Jesus. But even perfect church attendance doesn't create a relationship with Jesus. Maybe they think that because they want the benefits of Jesus and even call him their savior means that they have come to Jesus but desiring the things that Jesus offers 
and desiring Jesus himself are two very different things. And frankly, maybe they've come to the wrong Jesus. Judaism believes in Jesus. Islam believes in Jesus. The Baha'i faith believes in Jesus. Hinduism believes in Jesus. Buddhism believes in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Mormonism believes in Jesus. Christian science believes in Jesus. Many other religions have their versions of Jesus, but they are all gross distortions of the Jesus of the Bible, and not one of them believes that Jesus is the one true God. Some people think they have come to Jesus, but they really haven't ever come to him at all. They haven't come to the real Jesus, repenting of their sin and trusting in him and him alone to forgive them and to cover them with his own righteousness and to give them the grace to follow him. Why is it so hard for some people to come to Jesus? Well, some Christians think that sinful man in his fallen state can understand the gospel and believe in Christ before he receives the Holy Spirit. But 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are things that are discerned only through the Spirit. Some Christians believe that sinful man in his fallen state is not completely unrighteous and can still seek out Christ. But Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one by nature seeks for God. Some Christians believe that sinful man in his fallen state is merely sick and is like a drowning man who can reach up out of the water and grasp for help. But Ephesians 2, 1, does not say that man is merely sick. It says that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Man is not a drowning man. Man is already dead, lying on the bottom of the ocean floor. And dead people don't respond very well to anything. Some Christians believe that Jesus is just patiently waiting for sinful man in his fallen state to just make a decision to come to him. But Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. John 6, 37. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. And Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father, John 6, 65. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, by the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By nature, we will not and we cannot go to the Goel. By nature, we cannot and we will not go to the Goel. Why not? Because by nature, we don't want to. By nature, we don't want to. 
just like the guests in Jesus' parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. We are unwilling. We refuse to come. Jesus said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. Matthew 23, 37. Jesus said, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 5, 40. By nature, we love the darkness more than the light, John 3.19 says. We love our sin. We love our self-rule. We don't want a God over us telling us what to do and what not to do. By nature, we don't want to go to the Goel. Every other major world religion says that you either find God by conforming to a certain code of behavior or that you find God by being a good person and by doing good deeds or that you find God by becoming more enlightened or becoming wiser. In every case, you must ascend to God. You must do something to reach him. And this is what makes Christianity different from every other major world religion. Listen to this. It's the only one that claims God has come to us. We don't find God. God finds us. We don't go to God before God comes to us. And God came to us in Jesus Christ. Our Goel, the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, our Goel, the sinless Savior who carried out our death sentences on a cross. Our Goel, the conquering king who squashed Satan and sin and death for his people when he rose from the grave. Our Goel, the great intercessor who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, pleading the cause of his people and praying that they will not fall away. Our Goel, the only mediator between God and man, the only one through whom we can have access to the throne of God, the Father, the only one through whom we can be forgiven of sin and be made clean and have life in God and have a relationship with God. God came to us 2,000 years ago through Jesus, and God comes to us today through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. James writes, of his own will he brought us forth, gave us spiritual life by the word of truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ, James 1.18. Peter writes, you have been born again by the living and abiding word of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.23. Some Christians believe that anyone can simply pray to God to receive his grace. But Paul says in Romans 8, 26, that we don't even know what to pray for as we ought and that the Spirit has to help us. And Paul also, also quotes God speaking in Isaiah in Romans 10, 20, where God says, I have been found by those who did not seek for me. I have shown myself to those who didn't ask for me. 
Some Christians believe that repentance is only a work of man. But 2 Timothy 2.25 says that repentance is a gift of God. And Acts 11.28 says that God grants repentance, which leads to life. Some Christians believe that faith is only a work of man. But Philippians 1.29 says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. People go to the goel and go to the goel freely, but not before the goel comes to them through the gospel by the Spirit. People go to the goel and go to the goel freely, but not before the goel comes to them through the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Right, I already said this. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him by the Holy Spirit, John 6, 44. Acts 16, 14 says that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia by the Holy Spirit, and then she accepted the message of the gospel. And John says that everyone who believes that Jesus is in the Christ has been born of God by the Holy Spirit, 1 John 5, 1. Must not our eyes be opened before we see the beauty of Jesus? Must not our ears be opened before we hear his voice and his truth? Must not our hearts be made alive before we can love and follow him? The Spirit must act to bring us life, give us faith, grant us repentance, and bring us to Jesus. And how he does this, for whom he does this, and when he does this, is a mystery. Jesus said in John 3, 8, that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The sovereignty of God and salvation is a beautiful mystery. And the story of Ruth is an interesting love story and something of a beautiful mystery as well. It's not a boy meets girl and it's love at first sight and then they live happily ever after kind of story. No, it's a complex story of love born out of darkness and loss and heartache. And so it is with our love stories, with our Redeemer. They are complex stories, and they are mysterious stories, are they not? I know mine is. And as we get deeper and deeper into the book of Ruth, I think we see more and more that the real love story is not the one happening between Boaz and Ruth, but the mysterious one happening behind the scenes. God is redeeming Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. And Ruth's going to Boaz, the Goel, in the middle of the night is a picture of our going to God, our Goel, our Redeemer. And though this is a beautiful scene here in chapter three, how much more beautiful is the scene of the Redeemer first coming for us? saying to us, though you like sheep had gone astray and turned to your own way 
and were unwilling and refused to come to me. I have pursued you. I have chosen you. I have died for you. I love you so much, and I will take you to be my bride, and I will be your husband forever. This is our Redeemer. This is Jesus, the Goel who comes for us. And if you have already come to Christ or are deciding for the first time today to come to Christ, know that it is because Christ in his love has come to you. John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God is love and we love him because he first loved us. So today, if you see Jesus for who he is, if you know he is your God, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but come to him and keep coming to him and know that one day you will be with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We thank you for pursuing us, a rebellious people, and for loving us, a heartless and unloving people, and for dying for us, a people whose sin put you to death. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you for coming to us in the ways that you have, and we ask that you will continue to come to us and that you will move our hearts to seek you each day. We ask this in your name, amen.